the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Thank you, sir, and a good afternoon to you. Welcome. It is, of course, a Wednesday. It is the 26th day of September, and great to have you on board for yet another edition of Lifeline. We are here Monday through Friday from 5 until 7 p.m. addressing issues that impact your life and your world. We aim to do more of the same today. And don't be surprised. I just kind of want to put this out at the start of the show. Don't be surprised if in a generation we find young people who where heretofore we would say getting a job as a short-order cook or maybe working at a greeter at uh, Walmart would be a good entry-level position. If we find a, a segment of the population that just kind of seems to be content with that and going no further, don't be surprised. Because the day and an age, at least when I was raised, that they would hold out positions like, you know, if you study real hard and get good grades, someday you might grow up to be a leader and be the next president of the United States or sit on the United States Supreme Court. All of a sudden, those positions don't seem to have the level of attractiveness that they do. It's amazing. Uh, by the way, I am indebted to our engineer, Jarrell Martin, who uh, came up with a theme song for today's pro- uh, program, and I, I think quite appropriate considering the uh, the topic uh, for uh, our conversation today with a very special guest that we'll meet in just a second. But I, I'm just I'm eager to find out now. A theme song produced just for today's topic. I, I'm, I'm eager to think this is probably like... Uh, I don't know, 101 Strings or London Symphony Orchestra, something very highbrow, I'm I'm guessing. Let's listen. (laughs) No, you didn't. (laughs) Yes, you did, didn't you? Okay, yes, circus music. Well, (laughs) I suppose in light of what's going on in Washington, D.C., with uh, part two of the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings, uh, that's probably quite apropos. In all seriousness, and I appreciate the boys in the back room for coming up with that, Uh, you'll have to pay your ASCAP BMI music licensing fee later, Um, it has really become unbelievable. This is uncharted territory. In many levels, and I don't want to make light, I want to put this in context here. I do not wish nor intend to make light of the seriousness of many of the allegations that are being presented here, but certainly to say that it does seem as if this confirmation hearing uh, is getting far more complex than any of us, certainly not least of which Brett Kavanaugh could ever have imagined. 
and where normally we take a look at things in sort of the Monday morning quarterback role to try to do, determine what's already happened. Today we look forward to what may potentially happen tomorrow as uh, for the viewpoint of many, this nomination appears to be literally unraveling at the seams. Joining me is best-selling author and syndicated talk show host, Bob Zadek. Bob is the host of The Bob Zadek Show. Heard weekday mornings at 8 a.m. here in the San Francisco Bay Area and all across the West Coast here locally on 860 a.m. The Answer. And, Bob, great to have you with us. Uh, Do you share the opinion of the boys in the back room that this uh, nomination process seems to have taken on a a distinctively circus-like atmosphere? Well, I don't know if that's the right uh, metaphor. Uh, I I look upon what is happening. By the way, I am I find myself uncharacteristically in many for many levels emotionally involved in this. We may get into that a little bit. Emotions aren't so important to my radio to my public persona, but it may spill over a little bit. But I would say if I had to summarize this, what's going on with the Kavanaugh nomination, I would summarize it in three words. The founders knew. As as I hope our listeners will see by the end of the show, everything that is happening, whether you think it's good or bad, was predictable and predicted by the founders, and the founders did their darndest to prevent this from happening. And we will see, as you and I have our conversation, that this is about too much democracy. And uh, we will see what I mean by that. Uh, There is so much, Craig, there is so much to be learned on a civics level, not on a personal level, not on life at Yale, not on the effects of alcohol, not on sexual behavior or non-behavior. That's all almost irrelevant to what is going on. What is relevant is so many profound lessons about the structure of government can be gleaned from what is going on, irrespective of whether you have an opinion on yes or no on confirmation. But we'll get into that perhaps during the course of our conversation. Right, let's back up for a second here. I, I'm curious going to the heart of a key question here. As we see the first allegation, now we've seen that list grow to three separate people bringing allegations forward. This is after, of course, the conclusion of the initial committee hearings and testimony. Um, Certainly, as we know, in multiple occasions down through the years for multiple judicial positions, there has been due process and investigation taking place at the hands of the FBI, perhaps other agencies looking into Brett Kavanaugh's background prior to his confirmation to uh, various judicial Post down through the years. As you look at this, and, and, and as someone for the benefit of listeners, Bob, who's, where your background is, is as an attorney, are there any aspects where you look at this and say, all of these allegations coming forward so late in the game, post-hearing, does it seem to smack of the lack of due diligence at some level here, either on behalf of the Judiciary Committee or on behalf of the FBI, maybe all of them? You know, uh, I have I have been able to, uh, even though I am as intellectually and emotionally involved in this controversy 
as anybody that I that, that I've spoken to, anybody else. But I find the uh, people are behaving and asking questions as if this were a trial. And I say it is a trial. But you know who's on trial? Our system of government and our country. That's who's on trial. Not Brett Kavanaugh is not on trial. Being appointed to the Supreme Court or confirmed for the Supreme Court, the only question is for the Senate. The only question before them is, will the country be better off with Brent Kavanaugh on the bench or not? That's the only question. The, uh, the other question, did he do it? Did he not do it? Who do you believe? Why didn't she come forward? Um, all those questions are for a different forum. And look, look, I, I would remind our, our audience that the body of government that is asked to decide this is the Senate. Now, why did the founders decide that advice and consent comes from the Senate? Was it random between the Senate and the House? Was it random? No. Why the Senate? Because the Senate was designed to be in politically immune to the mob, politically immune to pandering to the public, to doing what the voters cry out for. The House is elected every two years, and they are always running for re-election, 24 hours a day, every day of their life. They are, as designed, responsive to the public. When the mob cries out for something, they better listen or they don't get re-elected. The Senate gets elected for a six-year term, which means there's plenty of time between them making a decision and facing the voters, enough time for issues to subside. So the Senate, the public, everybody in the public, or most of the public, has taken sides, one way or the other. They're writing their congressmen, they're petitioning, they're protesting. The Senate, if they did what they are supposed to do, they would ignore the mob, ignore the public, and by the way, the public has understandable, strongly held beliefs both ways. The Senate, if they were up to the task, if they were true to their oath, they would turn off their TVs, ignore the mob, and they would deliberate, asking themselves, would this man help the country, and should he be for the good of the country on the Supreme Court? Not should we give him a raise? Not should we give him a reward? The question is, should he be on the Supreme Court? And should not listen to the mob? I am so angry at Fox News and the other media for publishing polls. 60% of the people say he did it. 40% say he didn't. Who gives a darn? I don't care what the mob says. I respect their passionate point of view. It is simply not relevant to the sworn task of the Senate. The founders knew it, and, uh, and the senators are forgetting their job. Well, it certainly does strike me in listening to all of this debate ever since this nominee was put forward, and certainly the rhetoric has ratcheted up uh, pretty significantly 
um, post allegations. It, it has been riveting to me to listen to all of the debate over questions that seemingly on the surface appear to be reasonable questions, such as, will he be balanced? Will he be fair? Will his opinion skew, skew to the right, to the left, or the center? And while in the minds of some, those may all be very legitimate questions, isn't the core question here, isn't the real thing that is before the Senate Judiciary Committee to decide in terms of whether or not Brett Kavanaugh or, or any other candidate, quite frankly, before or, or in the future, would be qualified based on their understanding, their comprehension of the United States Constitution and original intent? I mean, aren't those the questions that should be asked, not whether or not he's going to be right, left, or center? Yes, except with one qualification, Craig. I would remind you the task of the Judiciary Committee is only to decide whether to send it to the floor of the Senate for a vote. The Judiciary Committee doesn't decide if he gets confirmed. It got, they decide if it gets to the floor. Remember, they only are the screening committee. They're like the HR department. They screen candidates until it goes to management, the floor of the Senate, to decide whether to hire once it gets to the floor of the Senate, assuming that this nominee does, which I think we're seeing doubt cast further and further on that as uh, the minutes tick by, but assuming that this, in fact, this nominee makes it to the Senate floor, is not their task to then make a determination based on the recommendation of that Judiciary Committee, and presumptively, since they, uh, if they indeed uh, give thumbs up, have, have, will have said, yes, he has passed the first screening test, is it not then their job to determine the fitness of this candidate based on his understanding of law, history, the Constitution, and original intent, and not necessarily getting to all of this political minutia. I mean, when I hear them grilling a potential Supreme Court candidate as to what their opinions are on very detailed issues of cases that may never even come before the U.S. Supreme Court, I, I have to wonder if this is more about setting an agenda or simply trying to show respect for the process that was put in place by our founding fathers. What I would remind you, you're, you're exactly right to raise that question, and of course I agree with you. I would remind you that nothing in our Constitution, indeed nothing anywhere, even requires a Supreme Court justice be an attorney. Remember that. So there's nothing constitutionally wrong with having an accountant sit on the Supreme Court. Now, he may not be competent, but remember, so when you say understanding of the Constitution, the founders didn't think that was a litmus test, or else they would have said there has to be a lawyer, or whatever it is. So just bear that in mind. Now, one thing that I would remind our friends out there about everybody being so passionate and having an opinion and petitioning and crying out and having a strong opinion in our country, we have, of course, jury trials. Now, when we have a jury trial in a criminal case, also in a civil case, but let's talk about a criminal case, jurors are screened, and they will be stricken from the jury and not being allowed to serve 
if they are found to have a bias. Why? Because they want the adjudicators, the finders of facts, to look at the facts in an unbiased way. Everybody in the public, who from the We Too movement on down, has strongly held beliefs. If this were a criminal trial, none of them would be allowed to serve. In other words, the country says we respect your passionate beliefs, but we strike you as being incompetent to decide about the guilt or innocence. If they would be incompetent to serve on a criminal jury, then their opinion is totally irrelevant as to whether Kavanaugh should be on the Supreme Court. And therefore, the senators must act like unbiased jurors in this regard. They have to forget their bias, if they can, and make a decision objectively on the merits. All of this passion is disturbing to me because the founders feared the hysteria of the mob. The mob acts on the moment without reflection. That's not a criticism of any human being in America. That is simply how it works. That's the dynamic. And right now, we are seeing mob rule. Well, there's no doubt about that because it's been very obvious, and you see this on both ends of the political continuum, People have already drawn conclusions before one word of testimony has been spoken, one question asked before deliverance of any documentation, eyewitness accounts, anything that you would. And again, I want to reiterate what Bob said. This is not a criminal trial, though we certainly seem to be treating it as if it were. But I find it troubling that there are such strong opinions that are being intimated by both sides before we've even heard from the accuser or before, really practically speaking, Brett Kavanaugh has had his opportunity to answer. We're going to come back to more of our conversation, pick it up after a brief time out with best-selling author Bob Zadek. By the way, his new book, Secret Sauce, the founder's original recipe for limited American democracy. And as you hear our conversation today progress, you'll perhaps begin to get a glimpse as to what that means. Some people say, how can you speak against democracy? Wait a minute here. They created a constitutional republic, and we misapply oftentimes the term democracy uh, willy-nilly and, and almost wantonly when it's convenient. But there was, in fact, as the framework of the Constitution and the Founding Fathers demonstrates, a plan for limited democracy under a constitutional republic. And Bob's new book goes into all of that. Secret Sauce, the Founders' Original Recipe for Limited American Democracy. You can get copies of the book available online. Simply go to bobzadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K, bobzadek.com. His program, The Bob Zadek Show, it is an intelligent alternative to much of the rhetoric and craziness that you see on the Sunday Morning Talking Head programs. His show comes your way Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m. The Answer. That's 860 a.m. The Answer. And if you have friends up and down the coast and say, hey, uh, boy, I heard the show. I love it. I got a cousin in uh, you know, Washington State or down in Colorado or Southern California. I'd love to hear the show. 
He is syndicated across the West Coast, so we invite you to share the good news if uh, you've enjoyed the program and let others know about it, too. Bob Zadek Show, Sunday mornings, 8 a.m. on 860 a.m., The Answer. All right, we're going to take a time out, come back to more of our conversation. We take a look at The Process, Brett Kavanaugh, and our visit with Bob Zadek continues. All right, we're a wee bit late. That an understatement, you say, Jarrell? Ten minutes? Okay, well, who's counting? Let's see what's going on traffic-wise. Michael Bennett's got the latest in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. People are going to have to make a decision. 36 years, there's no charge. All of a sudden, the hearings are over and the rumors start coming out. Why did they wait so long? Why did Senator Feinstein wait till the hearings were over and make this case? They're actually con artists because they know how quality this man is and they've destroyed a man's reputation and they want to destroy it even more. Welcome back to the conversation. There is President Trump opining on where we're at today. Tomorrow, of course, will begin uh, the next phase of this confirmation hearing. Testimony will be heard by Christine Blaisley Ford. There's now two other accusers that have stepped forward, and it seems to be almost like the proverbial onion. Each layer you pull back, there's one more hiding underneath it. There is much talk about presumption of innocence. Many of the references that we've heard in mainstream media almost would suggest that this is a trial when it, in fact, is not a trial. But it definitely seems to be a scenario that is devolved. How far away from the original intent of the Founding Fathers has this process become? Our conversation today continues on that point with syndicated talk show host Bob Zadek. His program, The Bob Zadek Show, heard Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m. The Answer. More information available on the web, bobzadek.com, B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. And Bob, what of this? We, we hear a lot of the opinions in relationship to presumption of innocence and uh, uh, accusations of guilt and so on and so forth. At the end of the day, though, doesn't this really come down to the character of the man as it relates to his capacity to do this job? And certainly many of these accusations point to the question of character. But if you had to look back from your experience, knowledge, and years and years of studying um, the the Founding Fathers and the Constitution, from your viewpoint, if, if any of the Founding Fathers could be here with us today to comment on what they see taking place, what do you think their remarks or observations would be? Um, their, remarks, their, obs- their remark would be, we were right. That's what their remark would be. And uh, when you say character, it's about character. Um, I... I take a deep breath when you say that. Perhaps it is, but there's not... Uh, if you go back in history, and if you look at... If, however you appraise character, Roosevelt, who is lionized by many, many Americans and many Americans who have since passed away as one of the greatest presidents, Roosevelt had a lot of ugliness in his past. He was not sympathetic to the Jews in Germany. He he was an iso- kind of an isolationist. He tried to avoid the war. Remember, he incurred the Japanese. Uh, does that reflect on his character? He was clearly, I think it's 
undisputed, he had profound biases that were kind of ugly by today's standards. So the question is, the question is, and it's a personal one, there's no rule, and it's a very personal decision. How much does character matter? And I would point out, just imagine that, I'm sure our listeners, there are lots of parents out there, lots of parents, and we know there's almost a stereotype. A policeman or a school principal brings home a child to a parent, and the child did something that is terribly offensive to the parent, to society. The parent's first reaction is, he couldn't have done that. He's my son or daughter. They couldn't have done that. Total disbelief. And no matter what's said, the parent will quite naturally say, no, you got to be mistaken. You have the wrong kid. That's a bias that people have. So when you bring to the judgment all these biases, when you ask how much does character matter, it's too hard a question. And that's a personal decision, but not to be made by the public. There's, there's a, a, a wonderful, wonderful story, um, several stories. It's probably the first observation of what I'm going to describe was by Aristotle. And Jefferson wrote about it because he anguished over it. It's the battle between the heart and the mind. The mind tells you one thing, the heart tells you another. It is one of the most impossible struggles for humans to have. And it's part of being a human being. You can't turn off the organ. So what you are seeing in this controversy, I dare say, is for a lot of people, the heart is full of passion, one way or the other. And that is dictating the conclusion. It's part of being a human being. And the people who must rise above it, the only people who must rise above it, above it are the senators. The senators, for the most part, hang out. They don't do anything very important. Once in a while, as President Kennedy wrote, they have to exhibit what he called a profile in courage. They have to be above. They have to be the statesmen that the position demands. So they must conquer the battle between the heart and the mind. I don't, I'm not troubled by the fact that so many people are so passionate, and I would say irrational. That's okay. People are allowed to be irrational so long as the irrationality doesn't harm the country or somebody else. And the people who are not allowed to be irrational or political are the senators. To me, this is about the Senate. Kavanaugh is not on trial. The Senate is on trial. And will they rise to the occasion? Who, who knows? And just one more comment, Craig. We have been reading ad nauseum about the Democratic senators in purple or red states, like Joe Manchin um, and Claire McCaskill. And they are trying to see how they should vote to get reelected. Craig, that is so offensive to me. Talk about putting your own job ahead of the country. They should be ashamed of themselves. This is not about politics. This is about being wise and being a statesman. The Senate is on trial, not Kavanaugh, not the Me Too movement, not the accusers, it's the Senate. And that's where I look to 
to be up to the task. Sadly, I think what's happened here is that there has become uh, so over-politicization of this process. And you point to it, I think, very aptly, that there is a stark difference between being a politician versus being a statesman. Yes, maybe the, the, the politician skill is what gets you elected to office, but then once there... Really and truly, if you're going to, uh, to the totality of the intent of the Founding Fathers, fulfill your duty to the nation, you then need to take off the politician's hat and put on the statesman's hat. But I think what's been in, in overabundance troubling about this is not just the politicization that is taking place here, but the fact that you've got, and, and you've alluded to this, Bob, uh, they're, they're testing the waters to see where popular opinion is going before they either make a pronouncement or uh, come forward with a decision or determination. Again, in some cases, an absence of any of the evidence, and, and certainly in, in most cases, paying far too much attention to what seems to be coming from the uh, the pool of public opinion as opposed to singularly looking at this in as a dis- politically disconnected manner as is possible. And my fear is that there's a good percentile of not only members of the Judiciary Committee, but ultimately the Senate, that are going to have a difficult, if not impossible, time disconnecting the politics side from the statesman side of their job. Did anybody, does anybody notice that members of the House are called representatives? That has a meaning, Craig. Members of the Senate are not called representatives. They're called senators, which presupposes possessing of wisdom. The senators do not represent the people remember the 17th amendment 1913 before the 17th amendment senators were elected by the states not by the people because they were not representatives they were there to chill down the passions in the house they were called the saucer to the cup in the house hot coffee was in the cup if you wanted to cool it down you put the coffee into the saucer, and it chilled down. The Senate should be chilling the passions, calming it down. That's their job. And the 17th Amendment made it harder. They don't represent the people. They represent, they are there to be wise and to do what's best for the country. And, Craig, just imagine, here we have senators calculating their reelection. Imagine a capital murder case, and people are serving on a jury. And imagine if they are told, thank you for serving on the jury. You get paid $500 a day, except if you convict, you get paid $1,000 a day. Now, be objective. Be objective, Mr. Jury, because you're there with somebody's life in your hands. Does anybody doubt that would lead to more convictions? Why? Because people in the jury behave in their self-interest. That's why we try to separate the self-interest. Manchin and the others, indeed maybe every member of the Senate, is voting on this issue in their self-interest. A a curse on all of them for doing that. Vote their minds, not their self-interest. 
Well, you know, there's been a lot of talk about conflict of interest here in terms of uh, who's representing whom, and now apparently the attorney for Stormy Daniels is representing the most uh, recent accuser, this Julie uh, uh, Swetnick that's come forward, uh, claiming that she's attended 20-something parties down through the years, which I think, uh, (laughs) with a very legitimate uh, cause for questioning, uh, people have said, well, if you've been to that many parties where this kind of behavior has taken place, and I'll not one occasion did you find it necessary to to report to the authorities, but I I digress. The conflict of interest here lies at the heart of the political aspirations of members of that committee versus what is exactly and properly and appropriately in the best interest of the country and with the kind of seriousness and sort of gravitas that needs to accompany a decision, a lifetime appointment to the highest court in the land. And I think that's what's most troubling. And and I concur with you on this point, Bob, that as much as it's bothersome to hear these accusations, and it goes from one to two, now to three, and this seems to be the stuff of which the front pages of the National Enquirer just love to eat up. And yet at the end of the day, what really here is on trial is not Brett Kavanaugh or the three accusers um, or the media's handling of any of this, but really what's on trial here is whether or not this Senate, these members of the Senate Judiciary Committee can disconnect themselves from the the mob mayhem and be clear thinkers or succumb to the mob mayhem. And if that happens, it, it spells a pretty disastrous future for our republic, does it not? Well, uh, it's it- this, these days of factionalization, of so much tribalism, frankly, I have never been so frightened and so worried about the country and the system of government that I love. In truth, Craig, and I'm speaking from my heart, I have never been so frightened as I am right now. Because I like to think that I sort of am intelligent enough and... I try to be dispassionate enough that I can figure stuff out. I can find a solution. And I can also, I'm profoundly optimistic. I, I can't find the optimism now with all of this tribalism, except to say the only savior has to be the system itself. And I am so process-driven. That's why I keep on coming back to the Senate. To me, it's all about process. You know, people live their lives in a certain way. If a friend of mine says, I need some money, I'll pay you back, I will lend him the money or her the money. Now, I don't take back uh, evidence. I don't take back a promissory note. What if that friend of mine stiffs me and doesn't pay me back? That will not cause me to change how I behave. I will simply say, okay, that's shame on him, but I have values and my values allow me to look in the mirror when I shave. I will stick to my values. I will behave in a certain way because it's process. It's not an anecdote. It's not an event that dictates my life. It's making a set of rules that you're comfortable with and sticking with it. And the Senate is called upon now to respect why their position was created, to be above the fray, ignore the heat, and simply decide what's best for the country and what does the country dictate and that's how they might vote not in the selfish 
saving a job. The fact that somebody can make this decision just so they can keep a great job is so offensive to me. It's so offensive, Craig. I despise it. Well, and the irony is, and I, I say this as a point of reference for our listeners, that typically when there's something crazy going on in the news, we like to go to Bob Zadek because he is the level head in the room. He is the dispassionate one. He is the one that says, okay, everybody, ratchet down the rhetoric. Stop breathing the helium. Don't drink any more of the Kool-Aid. Let's logically, methodically talk our way through this. Let's look at this topic or subject or issue in the light of history and the Founding Fathers, the documents that have been left behind to give us some illuminance and guidance into their thought process and their original intent, everything from uh, Federalist Papers to the Mayflower Compact to the Constitution to the Declaration of Independence that all serve as wonderful aids to get us to that place where we can begin to reason through Scripture says, come, let us reason together to reason through these questions and then come to a logical, thoughtful conclusion. When we find ourselves at a crossroad that even Bob Zadek finds himself um, uh, verklempt, (laughs) for the want of many better terms, over what we're seeing happening right now ought to be tremendous cause for concern for all of us. Because Bob's reaction to what's happening is indicative of a more serious underlying ailment in our country. And, you know, it's one thing to say we're at a crossroads because this is the swing seat and Kennedy's position historically ran either right or left. And this is going to impact the outcome of decisions by the court for years and years and years to come. Some of that may be true. Um, By the way, let me remind you that there are other members of the Supreme Court that may at some point die or retire and could be replaced. And the makeup of the court, the nature of the court can swing from uh, period to period and and certainly administration to administration. So it's not like what's going to happen here anytime soon is going to be set in concrete in perpetuity forever and ever. But that said, how the process plays out. And how close to respecting the intent of the Founding Fathers and their warnings and concerns, how close to all of that this plays out, will very much speak to not just the direction of the Supreme Court for years to come, but most shockingly, potentially, the direction of our nation and whether or not it goes on a fast track in a downward spiral, where one day I'm on the show talking about it in past tense, or whether or not we can pull it back from the precipice of potential disaster. Bob Zadek's concerned about what's going on right here. We all should be very, very concerned. Bob Zadek program, Sunday mornings, 8 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m. The answer, I'm going to tell you this. His show on Sunday is going to be one of the most fascinating because we will be post committee hearing, post-testimony, and the outcome will be very fascinating, and I know that Bob's going to break it all down for you. Sunday morning, 8 a.m., 8.60 a.m., the answer. More information available on the web, bobzadek.com. That's bobzadek.com. Our thanks to best-selling author and syndicated talk show host Bob Zadek for those insights. Helps to set 
the perspective here for us yet once again. All right, let's get some perspective on traffic. The latest with Michael Bennett. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We've often, I think, on the topic of taxes as Americans, drawn the conclusion that historically it was things like the Boston Tea Party and the sense of taxation without representation that spurred the American Revolution and brought America to where she is today. My next guest, though, will suggest mm, not quite true. Played a role, to be sure. But in fact, instead of the revolution sparking, uh, sparked by high taxes, it would instead be outrage against British attempts to suppress God-given, those so-called inalienable rights that we see articulated in the Constitution that we have today. Some insights now as we're joined by the director of the Center for Military and Veteran Studies at Coastal Carolina University in South Carolina. He's also the author of 16 best-selling books. His latest is entitled, By the Hand of Providence, How Faith Shaped the American Revolution. And Rod Gregg, thanks so much for being with us tonight. Thank you. Glad to be here. What headed you down this trajectory? I mean, obviously, you spent a lot of your life in the arena of, of looking at the Battle of Gettysburg in one of your books. You, you, you've been very much focused on the founding of our nation and, and the roots that we have. And, and I think, to be sure, most of us, certainly people listening to a program like this, see the faith-based roots of our nation. But to take it a step further now and, and suggest that as much as we've typically understood the American Revolution to be sparked by taxation without representation actually coming down to something a lot more valuable, quite frankly. Uh, this, this, I think, is some new news for folks. Well, I think it's, uh, it's an old story that needs to be re- retold because it's been uh, neglected in our day and has been largely forgotten uh, by, uh, by our nation. But it it's really uh, goes to the heart of who we are and, and what we became as a nation. And the American Revolution was a faith-based revolution because Americans were a faith-based people, and that faith was a biblical one. So the things that you mentioned, uh, taxation, uh, lack of representation in Parliament, uh, events that uh, were more of a catalyst like the Boston Tea Party, other protests, all those things were uh, had a role, and all of them uh, were kind of the dominoes falling, but uh, they were symptomatic of something deeper, and that is that the American people, as, as you put it well, um, American people were, were biblical. The colonial American people and the Americans at the time of the Revolution were uh, biblically literate. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody was devout. You had the, the devout, you had the nominal, you had the uninterested. But the, the American thought at the time was uh, firmly founded on the Judeo-Christian worldview. Uh, the culture was um, predominantly Protestant. It was overwhelmingly Christian, and it was almost universally Judeo-Christian in its approach. And that was the foundation of American culture, law, and government. So when these events occurred, these controversial events, over a period of time, increasing numbers of uh, Americans came to, to view King George III and Parliament as attempting to usurp the higher law of God and to uh, force the law of man instead. They saw them as uh, usurping uh, what they called inalienable or God-given rights, rights to life, to liberty, to what they called the, uh, the freedom to pursue happiness. And they came to view, eventually, uh, in great numbers, uh, King George III as a tyrant. That's why 
uh, American troops marched off to war in the Revolution under battle flags adorned with the with the slogan that said, "Resistance to tyrants is obedience to God." You you take the title of your new book by the hand of providence um, from a quote from George Washington, um, and I think as we think of him as uh, you know one of the key founding fathers. Uh, uh, the first president of the United States, although was somebody in there actually for a couple of days or something. I forget all the details on that, but 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 widely recognized as the first president of the United States. Uh, as we see the role that he played, Valley Forge, all the way through the list, give us some insights in terms of this man in particular and the the role that his faith played in taking the risk that he did in the founding of our nation. Well, and some people have made the, the case, uh, I think, kind of a weak one, the case uh, in recent uh, years that the presidents of the Continental Congress uh, in those days before the Constitution, during the, the time of the Articles of Confederation, were in a sense presidents, but they were not president of the United States. Uh, Washington was the first. It's, it's really, you really cannot overemphasize the influence of George Washington. Now, uh, the American Revolution was really taken forward by the American people. They're often overlooked. And the leaders reflected the worldview, the faith of the American people. You had the American people, you had their leaders in the Continental Congress, and then you had uh, George Washington, who was really heads above all others. Um, and he was greatly influential in inspiring his officers and troops to stay in this, uh, this movement, to stay in this revolution. And he also inspired the American people. And it wasn't because... He was a good general, and he became a good general. He became a great strategist, a good tactician, but he grew into that. What inspired the American people about Washington was his character, and that character was based on his personal faith, and that faith was clearly biblical. And that faith. Talk talk to me about your research in terms of the influence on that faith, on the decisions and the risks that he took personally um, in the American Revolution. Well, Washington was um, a, a low-church Anglican uh, who was uh, very serious about his faith. He was quiet about his faith. He wasn't the kind of man who would sit around, like Sam Adams, for instance, and, 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 and uh, engage or lead a dinnertime theological discussion. Uh, he was a low-church Anglican. He, was, uh, he didn't speak in uh, the vernacular of a 21st century evangelical, although his doctrine uh, personal doctrine that he believed as a as an Anglican was certainly uh, uh, in in that category of being a historic evangelical uh, Orthodox Christian doctrine. He was certainly not a deist, as some have claimed. Uh, there were very few deists actually involved among uh, the American people and, and among the founders, their leaders. Uh, the um, the historian there was a historian uh, in the 20th century, Perry Miller, who spent his life studying the colonial era. He really was a great expert on American colonial uh, life in the colonial era. He described it well. He said that deism was what he called an exotic plant that never took root in America because of the overwhelming influence of the biblical worldview, that Judeo-Christian worldview. Uh, so a deist was one who, who believed in an impersonal God, almost like a force, uh, a, a force-type creator who uh, launched and jump-started his creation then walked away from it. That's not the God that George Washington believed in. And uh, he was consistent in both his private writings, which were voluminous, 
and also in his, uh, his public statements, which were many, and consistent in expressing uh, that uh, faith, which was clearly, without question, a biblical faith. And so in, uh, in, in Washington's uh, decision-making uh, and the things he did, the things he didn't do, really governed by this. You look, for instance, um, he stands in real contrast to some of the leadership demonstrated by British commanders uh, who went into areas sometimes, uh, particularly in the South, where um, uh, they could have probably, had they handled the war right, could probably have... Uh, Americans were all reluct generally reluctant revolutionaries, and the British in some areas could have uh, kindled a, a great deal of support, but their behavior, their conduct, uh, really alienated people, and it made the uh, Americans in droves go over to the side of the patriot movement. Well, Washington was contrast to that in the way that he treated his enemies, the way he treated loyalist civilians. He made sure that they were not taken advantage of. He made sure that they weren't robbed and plundered like the British did. There was a real discipline there. He also uh, 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 routinely observed victories by holding worship services. Uh, he encouraged his troops to observe the national days of prayer that the Continental Congress called, and there were many of them during the Revolution. Uh, he at one time uh, urged his troops to conduct themselves, in his words, uh, at, in, with their behavior as becoming a Christian soldier. Uh, he made sure that uh, the army was equipped with chaplains, he took that very seriously and encouraged his men to, uh, to pick chaplains who were strong in their faith. Uh, so you see consistently through Washington's words and his behavior this character, and this character was reflection of his personal faith. If you've just joined our conversation tonight, Rod Gregg is with us. He, of course, is the director of the Center for Military and Veteran Studies at Coastal Carolina University in South Carolina. A new book entitled By the Hand of Providence, How Faith Shaped the American Revolution. We'll come back to more of our look at the role of faith in the founding of our nation as this edition of Lifeline continues. Get you an update on traffic. Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.